sometimes you have ideas that you can't shake. You know, it, it's just something that you feel this internal compulsion that you just have to create it. You have to get it out there. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn what is an industrial designer and how much does it cost to work with one, how you can get burned from a partnership, and how to transition your site to attract more B2B customers. Today, I'm joined by Alain Tamir from Studio Proper. Proper creates premium cases and accessories, mounting solutions for Apple iPhone, iPad, and watches. It was started in 2010 and based on Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Alain. Thank you so much for having me, Felix. Great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you as well. So tell us, what, what is like the most popular product that you sell? Well, we sell, um, probably our most popular product is a car mount that we created about four years ago. Um, and, and we created it at a time when car mounts were made predominantly using a suction cup method to, to mount onto the windscreen. And I don't know if you've used a solution like that before, mm-hmm. but they're terrible. They fall off the windscreen in the most inopportune time when you're turning onto the highway that you've never been on before. Or, you know, when the temperature increases by five degrees, the thing just, you know, fa- you know, face plants straight onto the floor. So our big innovation there, beyond kind of the magnetic mounting system that we created for our iPhone products, was to, to use an adhesive, um, a, a pretty specialized 3M adhesive to, to mount the actual uh, product onto the windscreen. So what you have is a rock-solid solution that's really slimline, super durable, and absolutely never falls off. Got it. So this, is this adhesive like a trade secret or did you find a solution somewhere else and adapted it for your product? Yeah, we, so not, not a trade secret. I think, I think you're right when you say we sort of took something that was in use elsewhere and adopted it for, for this use. Um, but essentially it's got properties that allow it to operate in a very broad range of temperatures. It's designed for adhe- adhering onto glass surfaces. Um, and whilst its strength is is super strong while in use, it also removes beautifully and cleanly. So it was it was more a matter of R and D, um, and and I suppose that's kind of been the core of Proper since we got started. It's been defining what our vision is and what the best experience looks like to us, and then innovating in in how we assemble that experience. What now? What's your background? How did you get into this line of business? So, so my background is totally not relevant to where I am today, interestingly enough. So I, you know, I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, um, got pretty bored of Melbourne, Australia, you know, quite quickly after high school, did some traveling and ended up in New York City where I lived for eight years. And I worked in a, in a variety of digital marketing, um, companies there across email and web, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then moved back to, to Melbourne, Australia after eight years, hard time in New York City, as I like to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved back, worked for a family business for a time, and then Apple announced the iPad. And that sort of changed everything for me. Um, self, self-confessed Apple fanboy through and through. And um, I got the device and, and really it was just a matter of having a light bulb moment at the time. So Really hard to kind of draw a continuous thread from, you know, where I came from to where mm-hmm. I am today. But I suppose um, every experience has an impact. And certainly the work I did in sort of digital and email marketing in, in the U.S. is now 
definitely coming in handy again. So. Right. So you told us about your most popular product. What was that first product that you you released? Sure. So the first product I released was was very much driven by the iPad when it was first launched. Um, if you can think all the way back, um, Apple launches a tablet, the first you know consumer tablet. It's it's amazing. Um, it really is a vision of the future, but in line with that, no one really knows what to do with it. So, you know, out of the gate, what most people were using it for was consuming media, right? So either you're watching YouTube or, or you're listening to music. Um, and, and these are activities that take, you know, 10, 15, 25 minutes to, to enjoy. But the device itself, whilst, yes, it's incredibly slim compa- compared to anything that's ever been available prior, it is quite heavy. So, you know, there, there was a, a light bulb moment for me where I thought, hey, we can really, um, we, we can really improve on this experience uh, if we think about it sort of in the context of a really small Apple TV. Uh, and what do you do with most TVs? You mount them to the wall because that's a fantastic, um, you know, fantastic user experience. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was the light bulb moment for me. It was, you know. Here's a great device, you know, at least initially it was performing a function of a media center, but it really wasn't that comfortable to hold for long periods of time. So the first product I launched was a wall mounting solution for the first generation iPad. And it essentially comprised of a protective case that stayed on the device. Um, And that case has what we call our X-Lock mounting technology integrated into the back surface of the case. And that mounts onto a small, uh, I suppose, puck-like component that you can stick onto virtually any surface. So, you know, we've had, you know, we had people sticking it onto the ceiling above their bed and and all sorts of places, and and that was kind of exciting to watch as well. Now, walk us through how you turned that initial idea that you just walked us through into a product. So, I had a really, really terrible uh, napkin sketch. Of, of what I thought without having any experience in product or industrial design or manufacturing or anything relevant at all. Um, so that's, sort of, you know, my first step was to sketch, you know, a very pedestrian version of, well, how can I get this device onto the wall? Um, so once I had that, you know, I thought it was, it was, you know, absolutely everything in a, in a bag of chips. I thought it was going to be precisely what we would manufacture. Um, the next step, based on a lot of Google research, was obviously to get engineering drawings um, created for this product. Um, and mind you, I again, absolutely zero experience in manufacturing ever. So this is essentially every step that I went through in this process was a journey of discovery, um, you know, going from, from absolute zero to 100. So... Again, Google researching, how do you manufacture something? Um, oh, you need an industrial designer, and then the industrial designer can take your idea and create what's known as um, design drawings or engineering drawings, and that is the material that you can then use as, um, you know, as, as what you supply to the manufacturing factory to actually create the product. Mm. So an industrial designer, what is their... When I hear that that term, it sounds like someone is working on, you know, large scale projects and in size, but they are also able to design things that are handheld and in this case, like very consumer uh, focused products. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, anything that's 
designed at all, uh, an industrial designer has has touched or been involved in. So, an industrial designer really is the the profession or the skill involved in, you know, taking a concept of of any description, and then figuring out, okay, based on material properties, manufacturing um, processes and technologies, how do we actually get a product that mm-hmm. is physically usable um, out of this, uh, out of what starts as a concept. Got it. How do you work with one? Like when you find an industrial designer, what's your working relationship like? So initially it was, it was just a contractor that I found uh, through Google who was located here in Melbourne. Uh, and we just had a, a standard kind of consultant client relationship where where he you know that that group assisted us uh, or assisted me at the time in again just understanding the the ins and outs of you know technically what I was trying to do um, you know then helping me refine the designs around how that could be achieved and finally landing on a design that was both you know well was aesthetically what I what I what my vision was directing towards and it was also manufacturable at scale. Can you give an idea of time and cost for something like this? Does that necessarily be your exact figures? But like, how how much can someone expect, and how long can they expect that to take? You know, time wise, I guess from from you know really really seed idea right the way through to okay, we're now ready to manufacture a hundred thousand of these. You're probably looking at three months if you're sort of doing it with a consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And it's not like a full-time thing. It's like you're giving them direction and they're working on it and you're kind of waiting around or? They'll go away. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I guess that's the, the major difference between, um, you know, startup phase versus where we are today. You know, today mm-hmm. we employ industrial designers who are working full-time on our range. But at that time, it was very much, you know, buying time from a industrial design consultant. And, you know, that meant I had to make sure that my costs were as as minimal as possible, obviously trying to to hedge the bet and de-risk what I was doing as much as I could. So it was it was a three month process, um, and within that three months, I had um, you know photo real images uh, generated of the concept in situ. So you know, images of an iPad mounted with this case mount solution in various environments um, to sort of line up the product with the vision. Um, I had uh, pre-production prototype samples of the components so I could actually use it and experience it. Um, and then finally, the set of in, uh, engineering drawings that I could then take and present to any manufacturer to, to actually have those discussions. So the industrial designer will take you from concept right up to manufacture, and then the entire world of manufacturing begins. Got it. And in terms of cost, like the budget that someone might need to set aside to start working with one, like what's the range? Yeah, look, I, I don't think you, you'll see much change from $10,000. And certainly that's a number tied directly to complexity. So, you know, obviously there, there's an enormous range of complexity around what a concept could, could entail. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, things like injection molded, um, Protective cases and, and plastic, uh, plastic objects is on the can can be on the simpler end of the spectrum. At least it was um, as, as far as what what my concept looked like. Got it. So you know, three months of time and you know, five figures of investment. So definitely a, a, a sizable investment that you had to put into this. What what made you sure that this was a business, a product that was worth investing that time and money into? 
you know, so, so one thing that I've luckily had since I was quite young is a very, very strong gut feel. And, you know, I've very often made decisions based on gut feel and, and over time and, and quite quickly, I have come to trust in, in my gut feel almost more than anything else. And um, this was just another example of something that I was, you know, so passionate about, so excited about, and something that I just desperately wanted to use in my own life. Um, and that was enough for me to to sort of take that punt, you know. I believed that, you know, if I felt internally so strongly that this um, improvement in the experience with the iPad was going to be so meaningful to me, there had to be at least a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, etc. Other people who would respond in the same way. So it was, yeah, it was obviously a big punt. It was a big risk, mm -hmm. uh, no matter how you look at it. But I, I felt strongly that the experience, particularly um, having sort of thought through it a lot, it wasn't obviously something that I came up with on a Tuesday and then spent five figures on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it was sort of, you know, you know, I think sometimes you have ideas that you can't shake. You know, it, it's just something that you feel this internal compulsion that you just have to create it. You have to get it out there. And, and I think that's very much how it was for me. Hmm. So once you have these deliverables, these assets from the industrial designer, you're working exclusively with the manufacturer this time, or is there still some back and forth between the manufacturer and the industrial designer? Yeah, no. So I, I, it, that sort of leaves you in yet another deep black hole of the unknown. At least that's how it was for me. So I had these beautiful engineering drawings, but I had, had absolutely no clue what to do with them, right? So obviously the industrial designer that I was working with um, sort of gave me some insight into what manufacturing looks like. But again, it was very much I was out there on my own. And, you know, I did one of the, the craziest, but in hindsight, best things I could have done. And I hopped on a plane to China um, after Googling, um, you know, manufacturers in China and setting up remotely from here in Melbourne uh, tours with 10 manufacturing facilities. Um, hopped on a plane, never been there before, didn't know anyone who had, had no insight into language, culture, geography, really. Um, but it was the next step. So I had to get out there and, and figure it out. And then that's what I did. So I spent... Mm -hmm. I spent two weeks in Shenzhen um, touring factories and back to the kind of gut feel um, method. I did land in, in you know, I, I landed with one manufacturing partner that I felt uh, was trustworthy, um, had the same view on quality. Obviously, a lot of manufacturers are about scale and volume. Um, it's much harder to find manufacturers who lead the conversation with quality and what are we actually trying to do here from a customer experience standpoint. So the fact that I was able to find one manufacturer that shared that um, alignment and, and that vision meant that uh, it was good enough for me to, to take the pun with them. For someone that wants to do something like this and go on like a, you know a ten uh, manufacturer tour, what tips do you have for specific questions or specific things that they can look out for, or look for to determine if someone's going to be a good partner or not? So I think you know the bottom line really is that you you have to get out there and, and see with your own eyes. I think that that's absolutely crucial. You can't really um, do this sort of thing remotely. 
But what you want to see is you want to see a manufacturing facility that's modern, um, that's well lit, that's clean. Um, you want to see that there is uh, process and procedures being followed. Um, a very important thing to, to make sure you ask for is to, to tour the QC facility. Um, so that's the quality control, um, which is usually in a separate building. And that's, that's really where you can start to uh, ascertain who it is you're dealing with, right? So it's easy enough to, to clean up a manufacturing floor when a, a foreign you know, manufacturer mm-hmm. or a foreign client is visiting, but it's the QC room where, where the magic really happens. And ultimately, you, you want to be receiving 10,000 units of perfection and without a QC process and a QC team in a very well-organized QC um, facility, that's that's not going to happen. So I would say that that's probably one of the most important um, one of the most important factors. The other is, you know, just look for look for you know vertical expertise. So if you're making something that is predominantly produced in plastic, you want to work with a manufacturing facility that 99% of what they do is in plastics. Mm. Um, there's there's a lot of manufacturing floor knowledge and expertise that. You'll find in a Chinese uh, manufacturing facility that comes purely by way of them doing this every single day and standing next to the machines that are pumping out the product. Now, when you line up these tours before you you left to to go to China, did they ask you how much quantity you were talking about? Like, did they care about volume? Um, yeah, they did, and I I, I probably just put out you know. 20,000 units, um, trying to find a number that would be enough for them to give me the time of day um, and also a number that was reasonable. Um, yes, absolutely. There, There's certainly – you can imagine the amount of demand on these manufacturers mm-hmm. given how much of the, the world they manufacture for. Um, so you do have to validate who you are and, and what your intentions are. Absolutely. Got it. So there, was there one clear winner out of those 10 or were you kind of – deciding between a couple at the end of your tour? There was one clear winner. So, you know, some of them were just too big and I felt like we'd get lost immediately. Mm. Um, and, I, and I didn't feel as though they'd really um, care too much about about us in the context of, of a, you know, their very large operation. Some of them were just not, um, they, they didn't feel sophisticated enough. Um, I sort of had concerns around, you know, cleanliness and, and organizational um, issues and, um, but there was, thankfully, there was one that, that really felt right. It was a smaller shop, um, a small team. Uh, a lot of them were sort of family members. Uh, they really kind of enjoyed and re- responded really positively to a young guy jumping on a plane with very, clearly very little knowledge. Um, and, and they kind of, they, they loved the spirit of it. And that, that was super meaningful as well. Got it. So you you mentioned something earlier about how the you have this X-Lock technology, and I like how you branded the technology that uh, that, that multiple products of yours is using. Well, what advantages have you found with doing something like this where you're naming your technology and branding it? So essentially, you know, we kind of created a whole new uh, a whole new accessory vertical um, by launching this this product, and. When you're launching something new that, that hasn't been done before, giving it a name helps people understand it. Um, so instead of saying it's a case that you can mount onto things, um, by calling the technology a, a name, in our case, X-Lock, and, and then for iPhone, it's M-Lock for the magnetic system, 
it, it gives us a central thread to badge onto every product in the ecosystem. And so what we can do is we can explain the system once, how this technology works, and then the mm -hmm. understanding that it applies across the entire range is, is easy. So it, it helps in, in kind of communicating what we're doing effectively. And it's also something we can, we can leverage as, as kind of a naming convention as we grow, um, you know, quite easily. Right. It reduces that kind of the cycles of education you have to do once you teach it to them once or once they learn about it once, you don't have to go back and explain each time yeah. you're marketing your product. And, and you know, consistency of language is, is crucial in, in trying to grow a business. So that, that helps in that, in, that, in that vein as well. Mm. Do you have examples of times where this has uh, helped or hurt when you haven't had that consistency? Well, you know, it's... It, it, certainly took a while to get to the point where we were having discussions around messaging in general. You know, at the, at the, in the very early days, you're hyper-focused on product and sales, and you, you don't necessarily have the time, knowledge, or experience to think about messaging and how the customer is actually viewing what it is that you're putting out into the world. Um, so certainly in the early, it, it took us a while to, to create the naming convention, to sort of understand that what we created wasn't a wall mount, but rather it was a mounting technology. Um, so I, I can't necessarily point to any specific um, moments, but I think it was more a, a gradual progression from, you know, that really early startup where it's about product and sales and then sort of getting to the point where you can take a couple of steps back and take a bit more of a holistic perspective on what you're doing, think about what your customers are seeing and how they're kind of digesting what you're putting out there and then start to fine tune that through things like naming conventions and range descriptions and things like that. Yeah. And I think your position a bit differently than maybe vastly differently than the typical, you know, iPhone case sellers out there, I think because of the branding and also it looks like you're focused on at least B2B is a pretty large channel for you. Was this always a focus the, the focusing on businesses as a customer? No, it's again a, a really interesting part of our trajectory to date. So we started purely as a consumer brand, and the vision was always consumer focused. Um, but the iPad very quickly became a tool for business, um, particularly driven by um, iPad as a cash register technology. So I'm sure you see it many times. You'll go into a cafe, mm -hmm. and what's running the transaction is actually an iPad. Um, so that, that was a technology that, um, that, that sort of was invented and launched primarily by Square initially and, and has certainly um, proliferated since then, you know, in many ways. But, you know, we, we had this audience of businesses, so small to medium-sized businesses, who immediately recognized how great the iPad was, you know, as a cash, cash register replacement. I mean, you know, you're going from a big black box that typically could cost $30,000 to a, a device that cost, you know, under $1,000 and could do a lot more for your business. Um, so that the, the adoption of iPad by business was something that, you know, launched and very quickly caught, caught fire. So the, the realization around businesses adopting iPad was that they needed a way for the iPad to actually exist within their context. So it was a very delicate, precious, breakable object that was mm -hmm. super expensive still, right? And so you needed a way to, to integrate 
this technology into your business and and you know the first thing you look for is a protective case but more so businesses had a need for a stand or a hand strap or a shoulder strap um, and so unbeknownst to us uh, products were being bought by businesses uh, or, or by people for use in their business and were you marketing it as a business product or did people just no, and, and we were totally ignorant to the fact that, you know, for a while we were ignorant to the fact that our products were being used in this way and it was a really fast-moving segment of our, of our audience. Again, it happened really early on in, in, in sort of the history of, of our brand. So it was well before we had the sophistication to do sort of market analytics and, and understand where our products were being used. Um, but, you know, we, we started getting messages from customers saying, uh, I love the the iPad stand. I'm using it in my cafe, but hey, I need I need some security. So, do you have any kind of way in which I can secure this down? And these 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 kinds of inquiries became you know far far more frequent, and, and that became a meaningful segment of the business very quickly. And there was an internal realization: hey, we're actually servicing two very distinct users, um, even though it is the same device. You know, there are two very, very unique markets that are growing around it. So absolutely not. We had zero kind of vision around the business business application of these devices being part of Studio Proper or Proper as a brand. But that changed very rapidly and has, has become an extremely exciting part of the business. Mm-hmm. Is B2B a bigger channel for you today than B2C? Uh, it's, it is still a, around a 50-50 split. Um, but I think what's exciting about the B2B space is is the pace of innovation, right? So the 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 uh, the pace with which the iPad is being adopted into to new uh, parts of of businesses is really exciting. Um, the peripherals around the iPad that are coming to market for you know to to facilitate transactions and all sorts of things in that in that world, a lot of a lot of fast sprint innovation happening in the business uh, in the business side. So it's an exciting place to be in, and certainly. You know, there are exciting partners that we work with and, and the customers are trying to do all sorts of wonderful things with this tech. So um, very, very excited that, that we've stumbled into that market. Mm. So you start off as a consumer brand, saw your opportunity with businesses buying your products and recognized that this was an opportunity that you could take on. So what did you have to shift around with the company inside the company to take on this opportunity? Well, you know, it was it was more a mindset shift, uh, more than anything else, right? I mean, again, our XLock technology could be could be leveraged to do myriad things, right? There was no limit to what we could apply that technology to. But what we needed to do was really understand who our two consumers, who, who our two customer bases were now, what what the customer profiles looked like, and what were the unique needs um, that that each of them had, right? So the, the business user obviously has, you know, needs around a level of robustness. They need uh, a level of permanence in how uh, something is installed into their space at times. They need a level of security. Um, they've got questions around if the Wi-Fi fails, you know, what, what can I do to, to ensure that my system doesn't go down? Um, they have concerns around uh, charge management, so ensuring these devices that are being used all day for really critical business tasks remain charged so it was it was more the understanding that we're no longer servicing one you know customer demographic or one use case we're now servicing two and they're very distinct 
So we needed to sort of create a bit of a mind shift within the business to understand that there are two and we need to give each of them um, deep respect and deep analysis to ensure we're servicing mm-hmm. them effectively. What have you noticed about the difference in the, that journey that the two types of customers go on from finding out about your brand and then eventually buying? What, what about the marketing or sales channel is different between the two? So, so certainly on the business side, you know, you're, you're part of a solution. Um, so uh, on the consumer side, if a iPhone owner purchases a case and car mount, you know, that's what they're going to use. And there, there isn't anything else in that equation. So we own that entire experience and, and we can sell that entirely. Um, on the business side, there's, there's obviously lots of components that go into, you know, a, a business's technology stack. Um, and so on the business side, we've, we've had a lot of success in partnering strategically with those other components. Um, so whether it's, uh, whether it's the, the telco that's providing the data service or it's the systems integrator that specializes in, in retail, uh, executions or, uh, retail fit out companies, you know, that there, there are so many different, um, different, um, you know, experts that are servicing segments of a business's needs. Um, and those are all great opportunities to partner, uh, together with them to, to create uh, a really great end to end solution for the business customer. So quite, quite different in the sale. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that there are companies that are offering complementary products, but then also companies that are offering services that you're partnering with. What kind of partner did you focus on first? So certainly it was the the partnerships with the uh, point of sale software vendors. So the companies that are making the apps that allow the business to transact on iPad. Um, you know, they, they, they are kind of the critical path to a business adopting iPad, or at least initially that was the, the, the process that most businesses were using iPad for, and it was obviously fully reliant on an app driving that experience for the business. So partnering with those guys was extremely valuable because, um, you know, we recognized how valuable they were and they recognized also how valuable we were because ultimately, you know, if I'm running a cafe, uh, I want the software to work, but the software works in the context of a hardware execution and that's all got to marry seamlessly so that I can actually get my day started and sell my coffee. Um, so we, we sort of solved each other's problem. We sort of the yin, yin to, to one another's yang. And that was, that was great for us. Got it. So there's a huge advantage with this approach because you can leverage the, the sales force of the team that's already probably actively talking to these customers, but you have to first get them to want to partner with you. So what was that process like? Um, so that, you know, it's, it's always, the process is always the same. It's about thinking about how you can add value and how you can help. Um, and, and that's the way we always try to lead our conversation. So we're never, we're never trying to kind of shove our products down anyone's throat. We're never trying to sell our products to anybody. We're evaluating what the other party, what the other party's doing. Um, and we're understanding perhaps where the friction or pain points in, in their process is. Um, do, do any of those relate to kind of a hardware challenge? And if the answer is yes, well, then how can we, how can we package up what we do so that we, um, we resolve that, that challenge for them? And I, I think that, you know, approaching conversations, particularly when, when it's a partnership that you're attempting to, to strike, you've got to really approach it from, well, well, what problem can I solve for them? Or how can I, you know, 
how can I reduce the friction in, in what they're trying to do? Mm. So have you created new products to make a partnership work or do you recommend people look for partners that can work with your existing product line already? I mean, we've we've definitely created lots of interesting riffs on kind of our, our uh, sort of uh, our standard range. Um, there will always, or quite frequently, there are needs that fall, you know, twenty five degrees in in either direction of what our core range looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what you need, what what you want to look for is a, a, a partner that you know demonstrates the level of quality in in craftsmanship. Um, the level of vision and innovation that you want to sort of uh, attach yourself to. And I think if you if you identify those key points, there's always something that can be done. So I would suggest you focus much less on, well, what's what's the nuts and bolts that I can see today uh, and much more on kind of a, a more top-line holistic viewpoint around, is this a company that's innovating? Are they thinking in a way that that uh, is impressive and is market-leading? Market that's usually the indicator that you, that you want in a partner. Mm. Can you walk us through the the way that you're de- you're developing these relationships with the these partners? Like are they large companies where you have to try to find one person, work your way up? Like how do you even begin down a process of finding a, a partner and eventually working with them? So you know, initially it's usually through the customer. Um, a customer will. So, so let, let's take the point of sale software example, uh, just to continue on the same course. They are obviously selling directly to, to businesses and their sale has traditionally, or, or at least initially it traditionally ended at that software solution. And then the customer was very much left on their own to find the other components, um, a lot of which are the products we supply. And so the customer would be buying the, the software, they'd be going out and buying the, the hardware components on their own. And oftentimes that customer becomes an evangelist for us um, to the software provider. That, that, that's at least how it happened quite frequently in the early days where, you know, the customer was so happy to find a solution to their problem, they would evangelize that to, to the software side and almost facilitate those discussions for us. Um, so that, again, when, when you're focusing on creating a great, you know, customer and user experience, you're focusing on adding value as much as you can, you're focusing on great customer service, people want to evangelize your brand and your products. And often that gives rise to these discussions and, and these partnership opportunities because, you know, they are talking to the same customer that you are talking to. And it's only natural um, that customers talk about what's exciting them about the solution that they've found. So in the early days, that's how we that's how we got in front of uh, some of the software partners that, that we've partnered with. But I suppose a, a totally different side of that is kind of the the distribution reach of our products and looking for distribution partners to help us gain further reach. And that's a very different that's a very different discussion and that's typically about identifying the right person. Uh, a lot of these distributors are enormous with many hundreds of uh, of kind of account managers or category managers. So that's a very different, you know, defining the right person, finding a way to get in front of them. And again, how do you convey your value to that person based on what it is that they're attempting to achieve? Yeah, and I bet the the types of deals, types of partnerships that you're creating are also going to be vastly different. What are some examples of ways that you would work, or you can't work with a partner, though? Are they buying the inventory, then packaging it up with their product? How is it used? How are some ways that it, that partnership is arranged? Sure. So 
there are a few ways you can do it. I mean, certainly getting product into a distributor is a great step. Um, it's often a difficult step, but it's an important step because um, many different types of partners can then pull that product from a distributor. So it becomes sort of your your centralized uh, supply chain into all sorts of partners who may need that product. So that's option one. Option two is certainly the uh, several of our software partners will purchase and hold stock directly from us uh, and will pass that stock to to the, the team that assists with the kind of on-the-ground implementation of their systems. Um, you know, we have partners who, for whom we create landing pages on our website that's co-branded, um, and that software partner just passes the customer um, onto us and we, we manage the, the hardware sale directly to them. So... You know, the old rule of, of being everywhere and, and kind of getting that surround sound, uh, that surround sound implemented is, is still crucial, being available through every channel, being open to, to creative ways to work with partners um, because, you know, they're, they're, there's no one right path. I think that the thing that you need to realise is that flexibility and, and getting creative and being innovative, even in how you supply product, is, is really what's crucial. Now, what about what does not work with the partnership? What are some things that you learned about working with partners and how they, you know, that just basically got burned or just didn't, didn't turn out the way that you expected? Look, I think I think you've always got to be wary of, and this is probably more in kind of the, the distribution world, um, perhaps more in the consumer world than the business product uh, world, but you've got to be wary of, of any potential partner that's, uh, you know, making enormous claims and, and promises off the bat. You know, that that to us is always a, a signal that um, you know we might not be heading down quite quite the right path. You know, you want to you want to find partners who are curious about what you're doing. They ask a lot of you know well thought out questions about what you're doing. Um, you know, part often partners that don't immediately understand your value or they turn out to be the best because they're the ones who take the time to think about things more deeply. And not just make assumptions about your business. Not make assumptions, not just, you don't want any partner who's simply trying to get as many brands as possible under their umbrella. Those are typically the worst kinds of uh, partnerships uh, that, that you can find. Even though they, they sound great, it's often, you know, often fool's gold. Um, that the really meaningful partnerships will take time to develop. They'll be based on a lot of really great discussions, either with a founder of the other, of the, of the partner business or, um, customers of the partner business. Um, and, and that's what we love. You know, we love engaging directly with, you know, all the parties involved, having really meaningful discussions. Um, and, and the big, the big kind of benefit of that is also that you're, you're really right there on the, on the edge of that feedback loop. So you also don't want to distance yourself from the customer too much. And that's been something that we learned and, and has become very central to our strategy. We definitely do whatever we can to remain as close as we can to, to the customer. Mm. What's your R&D process like today when you have such vastly different types of customers from on the B2B and the B2C side? So, so we kind of go through quarterly sprints. Um, so we'll, we'll define a quarter as either, as either a consumer or a B2B quarter. And obviously that's not hard and fast. There are a lot of times where that, that there's an intermingling of the two. But when we think about 
you know, innovating within a particular range, we try to bucket it into quarterly sprints. And, you know, it's it really comes down to, again, making sure that we are, you know, very well aware and very well uh, invested in understanding how our products are being used. Has that changed? Um, you know, what other new market technologies kind of in the same uh, hemisphere as us? From a technology perspective, um, you know, has anything has anything major shifted in an industry? Um, so there's there's a lot of kind of market analysis that, that goes into kind of an R and D process. That's always the first step. It's to analyze. Uh, so it, it's always you know step one is looking back, right? What has worked really well? What have our customers absolutely loved? What have they maybe not loved as much as we thought they would? How can we resolve that? Um, and what's going on in the industry. So that's always step one. And then step two is ideation, you know, getting really creative around what can we improve, what can we refine, um, is, there, is there any added value that we can, we can integrate into what we're doing? Is there a new product that we need to add to the range to service um, a market or a need that we've discovered? Uh, and then, you know, yes, yeah, so that ideation process goes right from concept through to, you know, physical design, um, we do a lot of 3D printing, we do a lot of workshops, um, and, and then right the way through to, to pre-production, uh, you know, real prototypes and then straight through to, to manufacturing and launch. Mm. So you're obviously selling uh, accessories for Apple products. What are the challenges with this when you are working, you're creating accessories around essentially another company, large companies, uh, their product releases? So the, the good thing about, so we, we develop exclusively for Apple devices. Um, and the benefit of that is, you know, you don't have an enormous number of fragmented devices that you're chasing, each of which are on their own kind of iterative release cycle. Mm -hmm. Apple has fairly standardized launch schedules. Um, and certainly it's, it's always a challenge to make sure you're on top of it and that you're launching um, your uh, your new range in line with the new devices so that customers can jump right back in. Um, but again, the, the, the very proactive decision to design exclusively for, for Apple um, is partially due to the fact that they have a really controlled number of devices and their launch schedule is, is controlled and, and consistent as well. Do you get some kind of lead time or heads up on a product an Apple product before it comes out so that you can be ready to create an accessory for it? I mean, we, we've gotten better at, at getting that. Um, so there, there's certainly things that we can do now that we couldn't do early in the piece. Um, not, not a whole lot that I can say in relation to that, but, uh, you know, I suppose suffice it to say that it does get easier. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose the more you, the more visibility we gain in the market, um, you know, the business application of Apple devices is something that's extremely important to Apple. So we, we service a real need there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's something that does get easier. Right, makes sense. Now, I'll talk a little about your, your website uh, at studioproper.com. What are some of your favorite features or, or pages on your website? So, we, you know, it's, it's an, interesting, uh, an interesting point for us to be having this conversation. We're about three weeks away from launching... Uh, our very, very substantially updated website. Um, so, you know, the website that you see today is very much a consumer-focused experience. Um, uh, the website is uh, a couple of years old, built on a custom theme. 
uh, and sort of iteratively improved over time. Um, and and it's it's been a beautiful process going from you know something that started out as a fairly basic theme and then implementing add-ons and improvements over time uh, until we got to a point where we sort of thought we have to kind of blank slate it and um, do another ground up do another ground up development cycle um, again in line with the maturation of our brand being heavily consumer and heavily business focused um, so. That's, uh, you know, I suppose that's, that's where our web mm-hmm. and Shopify strategy it sits at the moment. We're in a bit of a, an inflection point uh, and a pretty big, pretty big uh, change coming down the pipes in, in a few weeks. God, I think by the time the episode's out there, people can check it out for themselves and see what, what you're talking about. Yeah, hopefully, right? I mean, we're, 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 we're chomping at the bit. Yeah, what do you what do you think about when you do when you are approaching a redesign to try to focus on both B two B and B two C? What are some considerations that the audience should keep in mind if they are also in the same situation? So I think it's you know the realization obviously that the the buying approach and the buying decisions that are being made by each of those uh, demographics, each of those target markets is is very different. Um, the questions they're going to be asking themselves as they make the purchase is very different. Um, you know, yeah, often, often the individual doing the purchase is, is very, very different, but, you know, ultimately I think the big, the big realization for us is that no matter what, who you are, whether you're buying for yourself or buying for your business, you're ultimately viewing that purchase at some level as a consumer. So the product, the experience, the, the web experience has to speak to you as a consumer, which means it has to be clear. It has to be, um, easy to navigate, the information has to be really logically arranged and easy to access. Um, there needs to be very uh, accessible customer service points. So we have live chat on our website, <clears throat> as well as email, uh, an email support platform. Um, and the, uh, the, the product photography is obviously extremely crucial. So even though, even though the, the two audiences buying from the website are different, um, a lot of the drivers are the same. I just think the information that you present needs to be different and specific to, to that, to that purchaser. One thing that we are going to be doing very heavily on the business side of the website is, uh, a lot of case studies. So really sort of presenting the vision around how adopting proper business products can really enhance a business from efficiency, from, you know, an aesthetic improvement, from a customer experience improvement. And that's something that's probably much more important, obviously, when you're servicing a business need than when you're selling into a consumer where, you know, our consumer experience is very much focused on, uh, you know, the visuals around why our solution is great and is the right one for you to purchase. Got it. So again, for folks that want to check it out, studioproper.com. Thank you so much, Alon. And you mentioned to me that you have a gift for the audience. I, yes, I do. I will. Uh, I will have a, uh, a discount code for all the for all our listeners today um, to jump onto studioproper.com. Hopefully, it's the new website at that point. But either way, the products will be the same. And yeah, we hope we hope people jump on board and give us a shot. We, we really appreciate it. Got it. So check out the uh, the show notes for this episode. We'll have the discount code listed there. Again, thank you so much for your time, Alan. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.